from the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School. This is Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio, Sirius XM 111. Good morning, sports fans. Good morning, statistics fans. And good morning, business fans. Welcome to Wharton Moneyball here on Sirius XM 111, Business Radio powered by the Wharton School. My favorite two hours of the week live, Wednesday, 8 to 10 a.m. Eastern and replayed throughout the week. Uh, this is Eric Bradlow, a professor of marketing and statistics here at the Wharton School, and I'm with my co-host this morning, Shane Jensen. We're going to talk about the world of sports. We've got great guests at 8.30. We've got Brian Burke from ESPN. At 9 o'clock, we have Craig O'Shaughnessy talking to us about a big sporting event going on right now. It's called U.S. Open Tennis. But, of course, this isn't a show where you're just going to hear Shane and me talk, even to Brian and Craig. This is a call-in show, so please call us at one eight four four wharton that's one eight four four nine four two seventy eight sixty six. You can also email our producer Matt Datz at businessradio at SiriusXM dot com. And of course you can follow us on Twitter. I just tweeted just before the show. I was tweeting furiously as Shane was walking in this morning, and you can follow us at, at W Moneyball. So good morning, Shane. How are you doing this morning? Excellent. How are you doing this morning? Well, I have to admit I'm a little tired because I was up late last night watching the tennis. I was watching a very interesting five-game, five-set match between Roger Federer and Francis Tiafo uh, from the U.S., one of these U.S. up-and-coming stars. Federer won in five sets, but we'll have lots of tennis to That's ta- interesting to hear, though, because the U.S. is not... Uh, been very present, at least on the men's side in in U.S. competitive tennis, uh, in uh, world competitive tennis for a while now. Yeah, I mean, the top-rated U.S. player now is John Isner. You know, he's roughly, he he volleys between 15 and 20 in the world, somewhere in that range. We really haven't... He's probably not going to be a person who breaks through into the top five, right? Right. He's not. He's probably never going to be. You know, at six foot ten, six eleven, it's hard to return the ball. It's hard to yeah. get down low. Um, but what they've done actually something very interesting. I don't know if it's analytically, but you know, we try to blend sports analytics and business here. They've, you know, as you know, at the end of the year in tennis, the top eight men's players play in the advantage championships. It's in London. It's played at the I, et cetera, et cetera. What they've done this year is something interesting. They've got a separate set of championships now for players 21 and under. Hmm. So now there's a race to the top eight, but for the younger players coming in. It turns out, by the way, there's one player who is under 21, 21 and under, who's made it to the top eight of the regular part. His name is Alex Zarev, very yeah. popular player. And it's the four seed, actually, at the U.S. Open. So the U.S. has, I think... Three of those top eight players under the age of twenty-one. All right, well, now. that's very promising. So there's yeah. there's there's a promise right now that maybe the U.S. is on the rise at U.S. tennis. And again, this will be something to talk to Craig about during the nine o'clock hour. So we always do in the first half hour of here at Wharton Moneyball. Besides taking your calls again at one eight four four Wharton. That's one eight four four nine four two seventy eight sixty six. We do what caught our eye in sports. So what I thought I would do for Shane this morning as I was prepping yesterday for the show, um, I've got a bunch of topics. You know, a bunch of sports. And, you know, Shane, we'll pick away. All right. Sounds so good. one is obviously tennis, but not the topic we were just talking about. I got golf. I got MLB, NCAA football, of course, boxing, um, more MLB, and the NFL. Any of these catch your eye? Could be lots of them. All good sports, all good statistics going what on in all of them. for the NFL? Well, okay. So I went to the ESPN Power Index, and they, of course, forecast the standings. Yeah, for uh, the season for every team, as a matter of fact. And so um, I, we could go through all 30 teams and go over under and maybe we'll do that in the last nine o'clock, nine thirty hour. But something caught my eye. Um, as you know, there are eight divisions in football, four teams per division. 
Yep. And um, what do you think are the chances that a given division of four teams, that every team in that division will be at 500 or over? Let's even say above 500, not even 8-8, eight and 9-7 eight, and seven or better. What are the... What, what, well, what, for example, how, how often does that happen, yeah, basically? Yeah, how often do you or... think that happens? That every team in a division is above 500, not even 8-8, eight and 9-7 eight, and seven or better? At most, like, 5% of the time, I would guess. Correct, I, and I would agree with yeah. that. I would agree with that. Well, here's what... You have to explain this to me from a statistical perspective. Here's ESPN Power Index's prediction for this season. It has the Broncos at 10-6, and six, the Chiefs at 11-5, and five, the Chargers at 9-7, and seven, and the Raiders at 11-5. and five. Okay. All right, you say, okay. It has the Cowboys at 10-6, and six, the Giants at 10-6, and six, the Eagles at 9-7, and seven, and the Redskins at 9-7. and seven. So that's two divisions. But if you thought I was through... It has the Falcons at eleven and five, the Panthers at ten and six, the Saints at nine and seven, and the Bucks at nine and seven. I will bet every penny I have in my wallet yeah, that's, that I there mean, are I... not going to be three divisions with every team. So yeah. we talk about this all the time on Wharton Moneyball, but maybe you could let's have a discussion about this. I'd love your opinion. While any individual prediction, maybe these all are reasonable yeah. at an individual level, because it's obviously there, I hope they're doing game by game predictions. When you look at the collective total of individual predictions, a lot of times it doesn't make sense. So this is what caught my eye. I just yeah, love your thoughts I mean, on this. And I mean, I, I'm, I'm a little surprised uh, ESPN isn't doing this, but this is what's the, the strength of these systems that actually simulate the season forward do, because in those cases, you still can go into a season, a simulated season with like team abilities and, 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 and you know some kind of power index like ESPN has. But once you simulate a season you realize that this will play out such that some of these teams will just ha- almost by definite, by construction have to disappoint. Well, let's face the fact, as you know in football, um, each team in a division plays the other team twice. Yeah, so I you mean, play six division games. Um, the last time I checked, the average win percentage in those games has to be 50%. Someone's going to win yep. those games and someone's going to lose them. So already, for you to say that there are three divisions that are going to be above 500, those they must divisions be pummeling. I mean, I mean they, they, well, right, they, you'd almost have to have three divisions completely below 500 on the other side of it, like, to have that balance out, right? Right, and actually, we know, well, we know there's one division where there's at least one team that they don't predict to be under five, that's the Patriots. And yeah. the, no, no, I'm just saying, the Patriots are soaking up a lot of wins, too. They are. So now, all of a sudden, I mean, the losses are going to have to come somewhere. I just Is you it even me, the case that if you add it up across all teams, you get the same number of wins and losses. No, that's a good question. I have to admit, I didn't do that. Yeah. That is a good question. I should have done that. I could eyeball this. But, and... I mean, again, you know, th- th- Maybe. that's a great thing about, you know, I mean, I know that 538, for example, does sort of like takes a simulation approach to sort of predicting the season. And I really like that because you avoid these types of things. You can take into account strength of schedule really easily, you know, because you're simulating the entire season. Well, let me... And you essentially balance this type of stuff out. You're not well, going to get Well, let me tell those... you how I look at this now. It's a strange way to look at this. So the answer is I didn't do that, but I thought of doing that. But I didn't do that. But let me just tell you a little bit of backyard math, and maybe people want to join us here on Wharton Moneyballs and tell us your reaction. You think really three divisions are going to be over 500? They've got the Browns at 12 games under 500, 2 and 14. They've got the Bills at 6 and 10. At four games under five hundred, they got the Jets at five and eleven. I think that's optimistic. Yeah, at six games under five hundred, so that's twenty-two games. By the way, that you can spread around yeah. to the other twenty-nine. That's the way I view it. So now, all of a sudden, the average of the other teams isn't eight and eight. 
The average of the other teams is basically 9-7 and because you got 20-something games below that you can kind of spread yeah. around. But and even so just that, my eyeballing, yeah. I know, that doesn't get you. That doesn't, that doesn't get, get you, you a full division over 500. Well, three of them. Yeah, it three full divisions over 500, yeah. So could you talk to us about your experience in statistics doing the following? You have a data set. You have a model, as you mentioned, maybe an ELO model, a paired comparison yeah. model. You make some predictions, and then you kind of do what most good statisticians do is you look at the set of predictions, and you say to yourself, these have low face validity in its totality. Yeah. And then maybe you'll go back, and you make some iterations. How, how Can you just talk to our listeners about that process of what I'll call collection of data, analysis, I'll call it sanity check, yeah. and possibly going back and thinking, hmm, something in my assumptions has to be wrong Yeah, here. no, I mean, it, it is sort of an iterative cycle. I mean, and in fact, in statistics, you know, there's this saying, like, statisticians are like, uh, you know, photographers. They fall in love with their models. Um, I think that what that saying comes from is that basically you, you never kind of – statisticians feel compelled to always iterate their models. There's always going to be – some aspect of the data that you're not fitting well. So you can, you know, this type of scheme here where you fit a, fit a model that, like, essentially per team you think predicts about as well as you you can, but then you in the aggregate it, it's just not consistent. You know, you don't have – I mean, in football you don't typically have three divisions. You don't typically have even one division where all the teams are above 500. So you would look at that fact. You'd look at your results and say, well, now I have to do another iteration where I take into account – you know, the essentially the dependency among teams. And again, a simulation-based approach is probably the best way to do that. And so that would be yet another model iteration. And then you might even come out of that simulation-based model with some other aspect that you feel like is not particularly well captured by the model you have, and you iterate again. Yeah, so what's interesting, you bring up the most important word is dependency. In yeah. other words, there's, ma- forget logical, there's mathematical dependencies here. Now, by the way, yeah. while you were speaking, I was multitasking and listening, but they did not obviously do a game-by-game simulation, because here's why. Do we agree that within a division, there's four teams, they play 16 games, there's 64 games within a division, so the average has to be 32. Yeah. One division they have is 33 wins, the next 30... The next 34, 41, 38, 34, 39, and 34. That's no way that's averaging to 32. No. So they're all above 32. So basically it's they're predicting a, 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 an a impossible number win. of wins for across the league, essentially. Every yeah, year. so it's possible that they – well, I'm not exactly sure what was done here. But anyway, you asked what caught my eye. Yeah. That caught my eye. But what caught my eye wasn't – it's interesting. What didn't catch my eye was just, wow, I wonder if this sums to 500. What caught my eye was – I just think, how rare is this phenomenon of every team being above 500? I'm like, they can't really believe that three teams are going to be above 500. So I'll ask you a question. Of those three divisions that we've been discussing, which one has the great? Because it can actually happen that at least one of these divisions has every team above 500. Which of these divisions that they've sort of listed do you think is the best? Good question. So if you look at their power index, let's ignore the fact that it doesn't sum to 500. They have the best division, in my view, shockingly, being the AFC West. They have the yeah. Broncos, Chiefs, Chargers, Raiders for a total of 41 wins. I, I, I don't see it. I don't see it either. I don't see it. That's uh, not the one I would have picked. Yeah, yeah. As a matter of fact, it would have been the last of the three that I would have picked among those three divisions. I'd love to say the Falcons, Panthers, Saints, and Bucks are all going to be above 500. I don't see it. I actually don't see it um, because, look, 
again, they're going to play each other six times, each team playing the other each one two times. I, I don't see the Bucks, Saints, maybe even the Panthers. I don't make the Falcons obviously made the Super Bowl. I don't see those other three teams going outside the division and going seven and three, eight and two outside of the division. Yeah. Is because you know, let's say they on average they're going to go basically three and three in the division. I don't see them all going seven and three and they're out of division games. So I don't think the NFC South. I'd give the NFC East would have been the first one, except. I'm not a believer. You think the Eagles are going over 500 this year? Maybe. I, I doubt it, but only because we're already taking into account that they're in such a strong division. So, I mean, again, if if you condition on one of these divisions having to somehow get over 500, I think the NFC East does have the greatest chance. Uh, just because, I mean, I Which, guess— Which, by the way, according to their power index, they would give that— division i guess the least because it has the least total wins so no yeah. for the division strength they give that division the least chance yeah and i mean I, I just sort of i i see i look at the other divisions that we've been discussing and i see i mean i think that the way i would calculate it basically is what is the weakest team in each of these divisions i think the eagles are the weakest team in the nfc east i do think the eagles are stronger than the weakest teams in these other divisions, which I guess would be the Chargers in the AFC West, in my opinion, and the Saints in the NFC South. So I want to bring up what you've just done. But by the way, we're here on Wharton Moneyball, here on Sirius XM 111, business radio powered by the Wharton School. This is Eric Bradlow, professor of marketing and statistics, and I'm here with my co-host this morning, Shane Jensen. Some combination of myself, Shane, Adi Weiner, and Cade Massey are here every Wednesday morning live, 8 to 10 a.m. Eastern, and replayed throughout the week. And of course, if you want to join the conversation, which division do you think might be the one that goes all above 500. Who do you think is the weakest team in these divisions? Please call us at one eight four four Wharton. That's one eight four four nine four two seventy eight sixty six. Or you can email our producer Matt Datz at businessradio at siriusxm.com. I'd love the analysis you just did, uh, Shane, because the first thing you said is this is a mathematical fact. For every team to be above five hundred. The weakest team yeah. has to be above five hundred. Yeah. So you did that's exactly be the hardest what part. I, right. Yeah. So you did exactly what I did. And by the way, that's a mathematical truth. So now you did what I did. Let's go to each division, and let's think what's the chance the weakest team. Because yeah. by the way, also the other mathematical fact is when you multiply probabilities together, they go down. Like if the first probability is point five, and you multiply it by three other numbers between zero and one, the product of those numbers has to go down. So if the if you just take as a proxy, what's the chance the weakest team in the division is going to be above 500? And you compute that for every yeah. division. That's not going to be a bad rule of thumb to say, what are the chances that all the teams will be above 500? Yeah, and I mean, head-to-head, I would take the Eagles over the Saints. I would take the Eagles over the Chargers. Um, and so that's kind of where I'm going with the NFC East, potentially, in my mind, having the greatest chance. I don't think any of them I – mean, I mean, I think the highly probable event is that none, none. of them – all have every single team above 500 but but either way it, it's exciting because you know it's not this weekend obviously yeah. um it's next weekend but nfl's back yeah and i mean like just just one more question on this if we took it in the other direction is there any division that you would uh say has all teams below 500 no no i don't think so because well it gets back to um the sum constraint which yeah. is you know 10 games are outside the division six games are in um some team is going to go not a, look. I don't think there's. Maybe there has been. I don't know. I don't think there's ever been, or rarely does every team go three and three against the other teams. And matter of fact, probably some teams going to go four and two, five and one in their division. So can they not pick up three or four other wins? I think they probably can. However, if that was going to happen, 
Let's look at. It. We know it's. Oh, it's, let's all, it's, it's the, always it's always the AFC South, right? So that, it's always the AFC South. Right. That is the that division has been so terrible for so right. long. Right, but let me just say, by the way, there is some promise for the Titans and Texans this year. Sure, and, and you know the Jaguars have a good defense. They look. The yeah. Colts are my biggest worry because Andrew Luck is injured, and you know when is he going to play? Yeah, the team around him. I mean, that's that not team a team. Is terrible. That team's terrible. Team's terrible. That team is absolutely terrible. But no, I don't think any division is going to go entirely below five hundred. That would be that would be shocking. Although it did happen once, I, as I remember, I think there was one season. And fans, please correct me if I'm wrong. This is when we love the fans. Bradlow doesn't know anything. I'm pretty sure there was one season maybe where the Panthers won the division at like 7-8-1 or something like that. There was, it's relatively recent, right? Yeah, the, In the last 10 years. Yeah, there was one yeah. year where somebody won the NFC South, I'm pretty sure, with a 7-8-1 record. And that he, could the, very well be. So that that's interesting as well. Well, we that's kind of the NFL, but we'll certainly get back to the NFL. I think just for the respect to our fans here, and by the way, if you think, uh, if you think Cleveland's going to be bad this year, um, thanks to our producer, Matt Datz, apparently the Browns just released one, might argue, their best player, Joe Hayden. So I guess they don't need any good players on the Browns oh, to no, win games. Maybe, so, yeah. But he was due 11.1. And I was right. Matt, thank you. So 50 is the new 30 when it comes to senility. Matt said, and I can see up on my screen, in 2014, the Panthers won the division at 7-8-1. and one. Ridiculous! That wow. is, I feel so good about myself. I mean, I feel I, so I, awake I, I, I'm, I'm kind of used to whatever team winning the AFC South at like nine and seven. I mean, I don't think they've got you know or ten and six at the most. But yes, okay, oh, seven, eight, and one. Now, in fact, Matt reminds Impressive. me. This is why we have a producer. Thanks, Matt. In 2010, you may remember this: the Seahawks won the division at seven and nine. Boy, then they won a playoff game. Then, wasn't that the year? I think they might have gone to the Texans. I forget who they played. But there was the big controversy. I can't believe the 7-9 and nine team, sorry, is hosting a playoff yeah. game against some better team. They actually won a playoff game. Yeah. And it was some crazy... It wouldn't have been against the Texans. But no, no, it wouldn't have been who, against the Texans. But, but they won a game at 7-9. Yeah. and nine. So, yeah. so, you know, well, this is a perfect transition. So let me... let me. I'll pick the next topic because yeah. this is a perfect transition to it, which is... What's the value? I'll make the segue to, from the NFL, but to MLB. Yeah, I thought you. What's the value of the wild card versus the division winner in baseball? Now, <sighs> wait. Let's also transition that to the value of being a top two team in the NFL versus not. Now, you've said this. You've said this many times, but it's always good. We have new listeners here on Wharton Moneyball. They may not have heard the Shane Jensen yeah. theory. It's coin flips. Yeah. You want to flip less coins. So let's start with the fact, and I'd love your opinion on it, just as a non-wildcard team, you play less games, and as a top two teams, you play less games. So let's just yeah. start with that basic math. Just some thoughts yeah, on that. Yeah, that's right. I mean, like, basically, how good you are. I love the way they've done the new wildcard format because, A, it include you know, now that you have essentially two wildcard slots, it keeps way more teams competitive. You're talking about MLB up, right MLB, now. yes. Yeah. Up until the end. Um but that I mean, basically, what you have at the end of the season is a very entertaining one game playoff, but they could just flip a coin. I mean, really, that that one game playoff is the essence of a coin flip. So by losing out on the division but still getting in the playoffs via the wild card, you've cut your odds of advancing in half, basically. So so that's the value of winning the yeah, I'm division. I'm not even sure it's basically. Yeah, I, think I mean, it's, almost I think, essentially. I think it's yeah. almost essentially you've yeah. cut your odds of advancing in half. Yeah. And that's, uh, by the way, I think you and I have talked about this many times on the air here at Wharton Moneyball. Baseball's 162 games. 
Yeah, it's okay that the you know it's not fair to the wild card. Yeah, it is. Win your division, then it's yeah. okay. Yeah, you know you play all your teams in your division. What is it like eighteen times? People 20 forget times? there never used to be this. I mean, those teams wouldn't be in the playoffs from previous like iterations of of, of, the, of the rules. So no, I mean definitely it gives more teams a chance to get in the playoffs. It's just not a particularly good chance. But now let me get back to the Shane Jensen theory. The other yeah. part of your theory. Once, let's imagine, I'll make this up. Let's say the Yankees play the Twins in the wild card, which it could be the Red Sox, could the Yankees. Well, that, that's a bad example because I have never in living memory seen the Twins beat the Yankees. It just doesn't happen in the playoffs. Let's but anyway, pretend that the Yankees play that's the a coin tw- flip, too. Let's play that's a coin flip. And let's pretend the Yankees win the coin flip. Yeah. Now the Yankees are in the final four. Do you put anything above or below one quarter? Like, are. Here's one. So I'll lay out some theories for our fans here. One is, well, they're the wild card. They're the worst team. Yeah. Therefore, they should be lower than a quarter. Another theory is the Bradlow theory. They got momentum. They just won the oh. big game. Oh, they're man. Above, I'm not buying into that. They're, abo- they're above 25%. The other theory is neither of those theories is worth anything and it's a coin flip to everybody, unless I, you believe in home field. I th- well, no, I, I don't really believe in home field. I, I believe a little bit in the fact that to have won that wild card game, they probably burned through their best pitcher. Um, we're looking at the best starting couple. pitcher. I was hoping you were going to go to that. We're, so, I'm hoping that's where you were going to go. So I, I still think it's not. I still think the Yankees are not really noticeably different than 25 percent of of making it to the World Series, which is what the coin flips would say. Um, but to the extent that they are a little different from twenty five percent, they're lower. You know, just because they they, well, they had burn to go their through, pitcher, they, they had may to have... go through their best starting pitcher, whoever that is. Absolutely. So I just thought it was interesting because you just mentioned if you look, especially it's more so in the AF, uh, the American League this year than the National League. There are literally last time I checked was a yeah. couple of days ago. There are like seven or eight teams that have. You could argue you go on a five six game winning streak. You're in the wild card race, yeah. and so. I, I don't know, but you mentioned it earlier on the show here. That's great. No, I mean, I mean, there's, I mean there's basically 10 teams out of whatever, 15, the, the, that, that could basically the, say three, you know, th- a month left in the season, we're in it. The AL is wide open. The NL is super weird, man. I mean, so the fact that, I mean, basically both a, a, both NFC, NL wildcard teams are going to come out of the uh, the West. It's going to be Colorado and Arizona, and they are leaps and bounds ahead of the next that's what I was saying. Team. That's why I and wasn't mentioning still, the NL. They're 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 <laughs> definitely wild card. They they are they have amazing records, and they are 19 games behind the Dodgers. What the Dodgers are doing is absolutely ridiculous. So I believe in the coin flips. I really do. I I believe in the coin flip model for the playoffs. But my model has never been challenged by a team like the Dodgers. Those. I mean, we we haven't seen a team like that going into the playoffs at least uh, since I guess maybe Seattle back in the early uh, late nineties early two thousands. Well, again, if you have your pick, well, we've been talking about NFL. Obviously, feel free to call us about the NFL. If you have your pick for baseball, please call us. Please call us here at one eight four four Wharton. That's one eight four four nine four two seventy eight sixty six. This is Wharton Moneyball, and this is Eric Bradlow, professor of marketing and statistics, and I'm here with my co-host and friend Shane Jensen. So I wanted to ask you something about that. So. Does the format of the playoffs in baseball make a team, as since we're both a statistics show and a business show and a you know sports show, does it make a team think about its construction a little bit differently? And here's what I mean. You could be a great team for 162 games, but if you don't have – now, the Dodgers do – but if you don't have two or three dominant pitchers, yeah. well, 
Who cares? Five mediocre pitchers. Now, obviously, the Dodgers are going to probably win 110 games. You've got to do that with a little bit better than five mediocre pitchers. But you can have five good pitchers and get swept out of the playoffs yep. by a team with two good pitchers and three awful pitchers. Yeah, yeah I mean, we've seen it happen. I mean, I mean, do you remember? I mean, everybody in this city remembers that insane year. It was actually, I think, two years after they won the World Series. It was 2010 that they went to the playoffs. You're talking about the Phillies. Yeah, right. with Roy Halladay, Chase Utley. I mean, sorry, Cole Hamels. Um, Cliff Lee and Roy Oswald. That was their rotation. Yeah, was, it was I mean, unbelievable. By the way, and they got that, swept out by the Cardinals. Right, and that one, by the way, that pitching staff I think about quite often. Yeah, doesn't get. I mean, if you look from a historical perspective, it was unbelievable. It'd be in the top ten. I think you'd yeah. have to say of starting yeah, rotations right. in the history of baseball. Yeah. So you're right. I mean, now there's there's a comparison in the Dodgers. I actually have a, a basic, not a basic, but a statistical forecasting question for you. I'd love your opinion on. So the Dodgers, I think they lost last night, by the way. They're 91-39, and 39, okay? So it's roughly a 700-winning percentage. So that's targeting about 112, 113 games. So the arithmetic there is 91 over 130. So that's a fraction and a proportion. The other stat I wanted to bring up was Giancarlo Stanton, who's got now 51 home runs. Yeah. He hit one last night. Hit 18. In August. It's, I think, a record I think he August. might be up to yeah. 19 now. But either way, yeah. he's got 51 home runs in 131 games. So here's the thing I wanted to ask you. And maybe I'd love your thoughts on this. So what's actually, what's very interesting, it's not surprising. They both played roughly the same number of games. The denominator, the sample size, yeah. is the same in both. In other words, one guy's got a rate of 51 out of 131. Another team has a rate of 91 out of 130, basically yeah. the same denominator. Which of these two, if we're standing here at the end of the season, which rate do you think will be closer to its final rate? In other words, oh. do you, do you, do you, let me just list yeah. for my the listeners here on Wharton Moneyball. Yeah, uh, thanks, Matt. Uh, he has 18 in August, ties the record with Rudy York. Which of these, so let me just say again, Normally in statistics, when we have you know zero one events, did the person hit a homer? Did they not? Did they win? Did the Dodgers win the game or not? These are called Bernoulli trials or zero one trials. The denominator, the number of trials, determines in general the amount of variability yeah. in that estimate. But we've got the same denominator in both of these. But one of them is a person who's gone fifty one out of one hundred and thirty one. The other one is a team. That's gone 91 out of 130. If you had to project, is Stanton going to hit at a home run rate? He's basically on a 63 pace. Is he more likely to get to 63, or are the Dodgers more likely to get to 113? What do you think? Because to me, this is a fascinating statistics yeah. question. No, it is, and I guess... I guess I would take the Dodgers to to get to 113. And why? Why I agree with you, but why yeah. is that? Like, what do you, what gives you more confidence in a team versus an individual? Well, because you know, <laughs> to use the colloquial, a team is the sum of its parts, right? And and so, you know, obviously the Dodgers are a great team, but you've. you know, every season is made up of little streaks here and there by each player. And the, and having a great team allows you to kind of counterbalance some of those. Like like if somebody has a down streak, if one of your pitchers goes down, et cetera, et cetera, you can kind of absorb some of that variability with the rest of your team. Yeah, Whereas you're pointing out that the zero one Dodger outcomes are less variable in the sense that 
it's the sum of how you know twenty five yeah, players play. That's right. Giancarlo Stanton. I he's know, all out there on his own. He's out there on his own. There has to be more variability in that. Yeah, that's right. And I just I mean, thought it was interesting. Yeah, no, to know, I mean, we're bo- they're both. By the way, I felt. I know we asked this last week, but we did it just at the end of the show. I have to ask, I, you and I, I think, differ on this, but I just have to ask again, because I'm sure our listeners on Mort Moneyball are, are thinking here at, 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 on our show, um, if Giancarlo Stanton gets above 61, yeah. is there any historical significance of it whatsoever? And just to remind our listeners, Shane and I have written a paper on this um, about you know potential PED use. This was had to do with Roger Clemens. It wasn't about hitters necessarily, but... A lot of historical baseball people argue the last record in baseball for home runs was really still held by Roger Maris. Is there any significance? I think there's some significance. I would not. I, I, I'm certainly not going to celebrate it as a breaking of a record because the record was broken by Barry Bonds prior and and hey, and McGuire and Sosa. And McGuire, well, McGuire Sosa. certainly the first guy got yeah. seventy and Sosa That's over right. sixty over sixty one three times. That's right. So no, I mean I, I I will not celebrate it as a breaking of a record, but I think it's worth celebrating because uh, sixty three home runs is hard to do. Yeah, I mean that would be amazing. How much how much have you taken in looked in the fact that you know in some sense no one in the NL has hit above fifty homers for. 10 years and you know it's been since 2007 and you know uh, in the AL it was the last four or five yeah. years so I mean this reminds me I mean you're significantly not significantly you're a number of years younger than me this is the way it was as a kid yeah I remember the big deal when George Foster went above 50 home runs and then Cecil Fielder sorry not, yeah, Cecil Fielder I got yeah. the right Fielder not Prince his son Cecil Fielder went above 50 people were like I cannot believe that guy hits 50 home runs in a season. Then there were years where everybody was yeah. over 50. Doesn't this seem like back to the old days where 50 is a massive accomplishment? And we, I mean, Aaron I guess Judge, so, though, we agree. People, is, oh, my goodness, people are hitting home runs this season. I mean, yes, I, I think it is. And I think, you know, at, at, at the top end, I, I'm kind of glad that we can kind of look at these these achievements and not kind of like ha- be putting like asterisks in our minds. Maybe some people still are. Um, but... There's just so many home runs going on all over the place in baseball right now. Well, as we're going to talk about, we're going to t- about to take a break, but as we're going to talk about in the last half hour, of course, strikeouts are way yes, up too, and the old, right. you know, everybody's turning runs. into everybody's turning into Adam Dunn. And and actually, there's a great analysis yeah. on five thirty eight about that, which we'll talk about in our last half hour. So this has been the first one half hour of Wharton Moneyball. Uh, we have two third, uh, three quarters of our show to go. We have Brian Burke coming up right after the break. So please join us after the break here on Wharton Moneyball. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball, the show where three of my favorite topics, statistics, sports, and business, collide here on Sirius XM 111, business radio powered by the Wharton School. This is Eric Bradlow, professor of marketing and statistics, and I'm here with my co-host this morning, professor of statistics, Shane Jensen. Some combination of four of us are here every Wednesday morning, 8 to 10 a.m. Eastern, live and replayed throughout the week. And, of course, you can join us here. Join the conversation at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. And I hope you are following us on Twitter because our producer, Matt Datz, is doing lots of tweeting. I do lots of tweeting at our Twitter handle, at WMoneyBall. And thanks to our sound engineer and associate producer, Daniel Bruno for that music, although I have only slight criticism, although all this music could sound the same to me because I don't listen to any of it. I think that's a replay. 
I don't think, normally Danielle gives us a unique piece of music. I think I've heard that re-intro back before. So I don't know. That's, I, a, that's a high standard. I mean, Well, we're, we're I'm gonna, looking for uniqueness. Do we're we going to be on this, on this show for decades, man. I mean, there's just not enough music out there. I think, that, well, that's, there's lots of bad music out there. But either way, we have an important guest on our show. Um, from ESPN, we have Brian Burke. Uh, Brian joined ESPN in June of 2015 as a senior analytics specialist, one of the leading voices of NFL analytics, which is perfect timing because we were just talking about ESPN and and, uh, NFL. Uh, Brian was the founder of AdvancedFootballAnalytics.com, which he launched in 2007. Um, The other thing I want to talk about, doing a little bit of research on Brian, and this will be my first question to Brian when he joins us in just a second. Um, He was for a long time a U.S. Navy fighter pilot. And so, Brian, first, thank you for your service. Let's start with that. And also, of course, uh, welcome to Wharton Moneyball. This is Eric Bradno, and I'm here with my co-host this morning, Shane Jensen. Well, thank you for having me on. It's, it's always fun to talk to you guys. Yeah, Brian. So first, I mean, I have to ask you first, could you tell us just, you know, A, about your years of service and kind of how you stayed up on analytics during that years of service, and, you know, how does someone transition from being a a decorated U.S. Navy fighter pilot and make their way to advanced football analytics and eventually ESPN? Uh, Well, I wasn't into analytics, really. Um, Undergrad, I studied aerospace engineering. I went to Annapolis. Always wanted to be a a pilot, you know, growing up, and and was able to kind of live that dream. Um, I flew F-18s for about 11 years. as an officer in the Navy, uh, off the carrier. And, uh, yeah, it was a real thrill, but, um, uh, midway in there, the Navy decided, uh, it'd be a good idea for me to go to grad school and, uh, sent me to, to learn some, some stuff, which included, uh, what we used to call econometrics. We still um, call it that. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of, it's kind of a, a um, proto analytic, um, feel a lot of statistics, just Mostly regression stuff, but uh, you know, kind of before all the mach- you know modern machine learning uh, techniques came out, and I did pretty well with that. But I never really used it in my career as a pilot. Um, and uh, once I got out of the Navy, um, I, I had some extra time on my hands. Uh, my life wasn't as as uh, as busy, and uh, really got into to football. Realized that uh, uh, there was a lot of lot of uh, uh, low-hanging fruit uh, to be learned uh, about football. That it was it was kind of antiquated. Uh, what coaches were doing was, was didn't make a lot of sense. Um, so I started uh, throwing some some of the old software from grad school at it, and that's how I got started uh, doing this. Well, could and, you tell uh, us? Yeah. So could you yeah. tell us about? Let's go back to the to, into 2007. What made you start AdvancedFootballAnalytics.com? And could you just tell us about that start, and then we'll work our way to your current role as senior analytics specialist at ESPN. But yeah, tell us, take us back ten years to Advanced Football Analytics. Yeah. So I guess it was 2006. I was I'd gotten out of the Navy, had a um, more of a kind of a desk job uh, as a contractor uh, here outside DC, and. Uh, we were arguing at the water cooler about does defense really win championships? And we're going around in circles, you know, the typical discussion, yeah, but that's not really what they mean, and so on and so on. We're going around in this circle, and I said, well, gosh, we've I've got this SPSS, uh, you know, f- free version still on my laptop from grad school. All the stats we need are online now. You can download everything you need. My gosh, we can answer this question by the end of lunch. And uh, started that, that just – 
got me started. And I kept adding things to the model, and I realized, oh, my gosh, you could predict games with this model here. So let's start trying to predict the game outcomes. And I think as luck would have, it was just luck. The first week I tried to do this, I think we, you know, the model went like 16-0 and 0 and predicted all the winners. And I thought, oh, my God, I've really stumbled on something wonderful here. I've solved and football. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I thought I had. And then, um, but it was just luck. It was just all the favorites won that week, you know, which sometimes happens. But I didn't know that. I thought I was, you know, some kind of genius. And it just, I just caught the bug and, and just, um, it just spiraled from there. So uh, one of the things you're well known for, of course, is your work with, there's lots of things I want to talk about, but there's one of the things you're well known for is your kind of your work with QBR. Um, could you first just tell our listeners here, a lot of people hear this stat. Could you just give people the, because I've read a bunch of articles this morning and last night, what are the, what's the basic concept behind QBR? And also I know it's changed a bunch. Um, how has it changed? Well, uh, I have, I have to say, I did not create QBR, but it's QBR is based on the models and concepts that I did build uh, as part of advanced football analytics before I was with ESPN. Yeah, actually, and uh, just, yeah, I agree. By the way, I didn't mean to yeah. imply to our listeners here at Wharton Mayball that you created it, actually. But although I will say, if you Wikipedia QBR, you are given credit for the three or four people that spent the time building it refer to yeah. your work. Yes. Yeah, so, it, it, but since I've come on to ESPN now, it's it, it is my baby. So we revised it heavily uh, last season before last season. Um, so, in, in a nutshell, uh, what it tries to do is it takes uh, quarterback performance. It uses a model called expected points added um, on every play. To, yeah, every play, every snap, down distance yard line, and then um, which. which uh, very quickly, what it does, what, what that model does, is it, it recognizes that a three-yard gain on third and eight is not as good as a three-yard gain on you know, third and two. So it, it does that kind of magic. Uh, it, it is it clutch weights it so that we we are throwing away trash time. What we do is we devalue when the game is out of hand. We don't weight those plays very heavily. Um, and then what it does is it divides credit between the quarterback and the other members of the team, uh, the receivers. So it, it looks at the type of pass, where it was on the field, uh, how many pass rushers there were, how much pressure the quarterback was under, and it, it assigns a portion of credit to, to the different, uh, you know, to the line, to the receivers, and then to the quarterback. And lastly, what it does is it converts it to a 0 to 100 scale, so that 50 is about average, and uh, 100 would be, um, would be a perfect Perfect game. So since we're here on Wharton Moneyball, again, we're here on Sirius XM 111, business radio powered by the Wharton School. This is Eric Bradlow, and I'm here with my co-host this morning, Shane Jensen. We're talking to Brian Burke, senior analyst, senior analytics specialist at ESPN. By the way, if you want to follow Brian on Twitter, we, and I do, uh, go to at ESPN. That's at B-B-U-R-K-E-E-S-P-N. You can follow him on Twitter. Um, since this is a statistics show as well, I wanted to ask you a couple questions about what you just said, Brian. How, and because this will be just in general, a lot of our listeners want to know there's got to be some subjectivity in this secret sauce, or maybe there isn't. Like, let me mention two things you just said, and maybe you could tell us how you address them. So, how do you decide how much credit to give to the quarterback versus the receivers versus the line? Because one could imagine doing that subjectively or objectively. And the other is you mentioned garbage time. How do you decide how much down weight to put on garbage time? And the broader statistics I'm bringing up to our listeners are all statistical models at some point are going to make some assumptions or maybe have to make some decisions that aren't empirically driven. I'm just wondering how you guys think about it with QBR. 
Okay, uh, let's go in reverse order. So assumptions, garbage time, and then division of credit. Okay, so it's, I would say assumptions are that uh, that in, it is an aggregate. So it's not meant to say give you a, a realistic division of credit, say on, on one this one play. But in aggregate, we know that um, quarterbacks would be responsible for um, X percent of the success or failure of a play uh, given. Um, given a set of circumstances. Uh, now, th- th- that, th- those kind of, um, that model itself is based on looking at, at historical trends in terms of, hey, the average quarterback throws to a certain place in a certain um, part of the field, and so what is the variance after that in terms of yards after catch or what the defense is able to do in order to stop that pass? Um, so it's really based on, on those variances kind of from that point forward. So we have conditional down and distance yard line numbers. So if you throw it to a certain spot on the field, okay, now the receiver has the ball. What, let's say it was first and 10 from the 50, uh, and it's a four-yard pass. Okay, now if the receiver doesn't do anything from that point forward, it's a, you know, second and six from the 46, right? So – that's how that kind of thing so it's works. really that condition. I know there's two other points you want to get to, but there's it's really that conditional, like down distance, where on the field, who's throwing to who potentially, like how long is the pass versus how long is the run after the catch. All of yeah. that is kind of it's it's those types of conditional statements. It's that it's based on the, those things as well as the type of pass, screen pass, uh, the running back draw, um, or a downfield pass. Uh, the other factors are yeah, num- number of rushers, pass rushers. Um, so if you have excess pass rushers, then you have uh, then you have blockers. The quarterback's going to be under accelerated pressure, so he's he's given extra credit basically mm-hmm. for making a successful play under those conditions, or he is um, uh, not as penalized as as if he doesn't make a successful play. Uh, runs in particular are very heavy. Quarterback gets a lot of credit. So you'll see running-type quarterbacks do relatively well under QBR. If you look at passer rating, passer rating doesn't, doesn't even think about uh, scrambles or runs or even sacks, So for that matter. So um, that's where QBR is uh, really handy. Uh, in terms of garbage time, what we do is we have uh, – it's based on a win probability model, which uh, in turn tells us the leverage of any given play. So – we say, hey, if this play is successful, uh, it has a big effect on the game outcome. If this play is uh, unsuccessful, it'll have this big an effect on the game. So we look at that spread, that the difference, the leverage between um, the effect on, on the team's chances of winning the game if the, if the play were successful versus unsuccessful. So if you're down by 40 points with one minute to play in the game, there's no leverage. Uh, if, 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 it's, uh, if you're down by uh, four and there's a minute to go, there's a ton of leverage on, on the game outcome. So we look at that leverage index, and we will um, uh, we create a multiplier, uh, which does not, never overemphasizes, never, never overweights a play, but in trash time when the game is kind of out of hand, uh, it will devalue that according to proportionately uh, um, based on that leverage index. 
So of the quarterbacks that, you know, like, for example, just as, since we both try to stay topical here on Wharton Moneyball, but also talk about broad topics, um, there was a big quarterback signing, I guess it was yesterday, uh, Matthew Stafford, was just signed to, a, I think it was yesterday, was just signed to a big like $130-plus million contract. When you see things like this, the natural thing that most of us fans do is we look at, boy, how many yards did he pass for? What's his touchdown-interception ratio? How, how many Matt- wins? Yeah, yeah how many, well, I mean, has, we're doing he's, he's, very he's, traditional no, stuff. No playoff wins. Yeah. Um, but does Matthew Stafford, how, how is he from a QBR perspective? Uh, I'm looking at it right now. So he, he ranked eighth last year, top ten. Um, Not bad. So that would, could be worth $130 million in the NFL. Yeah, so here, uh, here's what I think is going on. Um, the, in the NFL, you've got this team salary cap, but you don't have an individual salary cap. And I think the true market value of a top-tier quarterback like Brady, like uh, Aaron Rodgers, uh, Drew Brees maybe, um, their true market value relative to the rest of the team because of the singularly unique, important role of a quarterback on a, in modern NFL would be half of the team salary cap, which would uh, handicap the team so badly with the rest of the players that you really can't do that. You really, these very, very top tier quarterbacks like an Aaron Rodgers, where they have to kind of play ball with their teams and, and maybe only take $30 million, $35 million a year rather than uh, what their true kind of relative importance, you know, market value would really dictate. And that leaves enough left on the table to construct a team around them that can, that can go to the playoffs and, and win championships. So you, you see second-tier and third-tier quarterbacks like, like a Stafford, like a Joe Flacco, who are making you know, maybe X minus $1 million than Aaron Rodgers. And you think, wow, something's really broken here. Well, th- that's why. is because there's kind of this soft cap, this implied cap on the very top-tier uh, quarterback contracts that don't allow a team to win games unless, you, unless they kind of— Yeah, it's an interesting statement. According to you. It's not just Joe Flacco's getting overpaid. It's that Tom Brady and Aaron Rodgers are getting underpaid. Yep, definitely. I, th- I think if the quarterback is just uh, – people have been saying it for, for years now. It's a quarterback league. It's a passing league. But it, it's, it's becoming more and more so. And I think even when people say that, they don't realize just how critical that position really is. Well, this is uh, Shane Jensen. Can you toss – if you had the ideal data or the ideal – kind of analytical tools, what do you think QBR is missing right now? Like, what, what, what would you like to add into QBR that you haven't been able to do so far? I think, uh, well, last year we added uh, defense adjustments, which is a kind of a big missing piece uh, until last year. I would say what we would, we would look at schemes and, you know, what a quarterback is really asked to do. So, How would you uh, know that? This is, back, this is Eric again. Back to Shane's question. Like, where would you get the data from to know what a quarterback – like, how do you know if the quarterback has, like, checked down to the third option? Or, like, how could – where's the data coming from that would give you the stuff that you might want to know? Yeah, well, I mean, I, I, in theory, it would come from the teams themselves, but that's, that's obviously impossible. Um, if I could wave a magic wand, we would know that. I think the second best hope is through player tracking data and if we you know ask some neural networks to kind of take a look at a play and tell us hey where where was the primary target where um you know what kind of root combinations were going on here what was the defensive uh scheme you know what was the coverage look like Uh, how well did the offensive line block um if we can get we can get the the player tracking data 
uh, to do that for us, we would have a um, we'd learn some some really interesting things. Let me ask a follow up question to Shane's question. Um, as you think about the importance of analytics and things like QBR, uh, if I list the following three areas as the which one is kind of needs the most advancement to kind of change its impact on the game. Do you think it's what Shane asked about, which is the data? Like, if you had better data, you could do better stuff and better analytics, and therefore it would have more impact. Is it Mm -hmm. the mathematical models? Like, if we had better math with the data, we could do better. Or is it still what most people would say is the willingness of teams and, let's see, whether it's the front office or the coaches to actually use it? Do we have a data problem, a math problem, or a willingness to implement problem? Uh, Well, I think... I mean, me personally, I'm data limited. I, I have all kinds of ideas. I have so many ideas. I would love to take a look at things. Um, and uh, I've got all kinds of ideas for, you know, what kind of models can solve these these questions and problems. Um, so I personally feel data limited from my perspective. In terms of permeating the league with, with analytics and having the league become more and more analytical, I think there's a, a fundamental difference between football and several other types of sports, so it, which is a big hurdle to get over. Um, and, and I think player tracking data will help improve that, but it's never really going to solve it. So in any given play, you've got 22 players, and it's, it's chaos by design. It's deception and chaos by design. Uh, so it, it's very difficult to um, take one player's performance and um, – you know, separate that from the, his 10 teammates and the 11 players on on the other team. Uh, so QBR is just, a, you know, honestly, a relatively crude way to do that. It's the only real stat that, that's even attempting to do that right now, but it, it's still relatively crude. Um, so what analytics in football is going to require is kind of a melding of the qualitative, uh, kind of scouting, intuitive kind of grading, and then the quantitative. So we take, like, you know, scouting grades, um, which are traditionally based, and then the, we take those numbers, and then we can put player values, uh, learn things. So I think that's really where, you know, the X's and O's are really interesting, and that's what I've kind of – that's the kind of football I've tried to solve. Um, but it's, it's the player valuation. It's who do you draft, who do you select, you know, what kind of free agents are worth signing, you know, what kind of money are they worth um, – that is the personnel side that really wins and loses games. So in, until there's this melding of the qualitative and the quantitative, uh, I don't think we're going to see uh, football become like, like baseball. Well, let me ask a question. As you're thinking about the upcoming season, is there anything that, like as you did uh, some analysis for the upcoming season, is there anything that struck your eye, like any teams you think that were they're over or undervalued or any, let's even say, quarterbacks that are over and undervalued coming into the upcoming season? Yeah, for, well, that, that's one thing we do pretty well is we, um, you know, we've got team strength models. Uh, ESPN, we've got football power index. So it, I'll say, though, preseason, it's a dangerous game to try to predict. It's such a short season. Um, you can have a very good team just by sample error alone kind of fall short and not make the playoffs. And you can have a pretty mediocre team have a very good record just by you know, some sample error or, or catching a couple teams while their, you know, quarterbacks are injured and stuff like that. But, um, yeah, right now I think what you look at is teams that kind of overperformed 
their true talent level last year, uh, they'll probably regress uh, harder than most people think. Do you and think the Cowboys well, are one of those teams? Absolutely. So the Cowboys, yeah, 13 wins. Um, they'll still be very good. I still think they're the favorite to win their division, but they're not a 13-win team by nature. I think they'll, they're a good candidate to, to uh, um, kind of fall short of that. Uh, the Raiders are another example. So the Raiders, I think, were they won – eight of their nine games that were decided by a touchdown or less. Um, that's a pretty amazing record. So there's some luck, uh, definitely some luck. You know, we would call sample error. Most people would call luck um, involved in, in a 16-game season. So the Raiders are like that. Houston's like that. Miami's like that. I think Detroit would be like that too. So those are the kind of teams from last year who, who are pretty good, probably going to regress this year. Um, on the upside, though, we're talking about teams that still probably won't make the playoffs but are, are probably better than what, what people think they are. So teams like the Jaguars, the Browns, who only – it's really difficult to, to win uh, fewer than, you know, one or fewer games in the NFL. So they'll probably improve. I think uh, the Eagles are a team to look at. Uh, Carson Wentz, usually quarterbacks jump. Um, yep, in their yep second, in their second year, yep. and they kind of hit their steady state, kind of long term performance. So what you see from Carson once this year is probably what you're going to see from his career. Um, well, Brian, I'm sorry, but we have to jump here at Wharton Moneyball. But I want to thank you. We've been talking to Brian Burke, senior analytics specialist at ESPN. First of all, Brian, again, thank you for your service in the Navy. Thank you for your work with Advanced Football Analytics, and thank you for your work at ESPN. Oh, thanks for having me on. Great. Uh, so this has been Wharton Moneyball. Half the show is done. Please join us after the break. We'll be talking about tennis and lots more here on Wharton Moneyball. Listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio, Sirius XM 111. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball, the show where sports statistics and business collide. This is Eric Bradlow, and I'm here this morning with my co-host Shane Jensen. We're here on Sirius XM 111, Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. We're here every Wednesday morning live, 8 to 10 a.m. Eastern, and replayed throughout the week. We just had a great conversation with Brian Burke at B. Burke ESPN, a senior analytics specialist, talking about the NFL. And, of course, you can join the conversation. Ask us any questions you have here at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. You can also email our producer, Matt Datz, at businessradio at SiriusXM.com. And, of course, I hope you're following us on Twitter at at WMoneyBall. So, Shane, we're in for a real treat one of my favorite times of year, of course, are the Grand Slams in tennis. I'm a huge tennis fan. I've been fortunate to have been to a number of the Grand Slams. And uh, we have Craig O'Shaughnessy joining us. Uh, Craig is widely recognized as one of the world leader in teaching and analyzing tennis strategy. Um, he's done, he actually, his specific area in the sport is creating his online brain game, brain game tennis to teach players, coaches, and fans the pa- patterns of play and winning percentages. So, Craig, welcome to Wharton Moneyball. This is Eric Bradlow, and I'm here with my co-host this morning, Shane Jensen. Eric and Shane, good morning from New York. 
Ah, so you're in the hotbed of tennis right now. So I'm I, I, here. Yeah, so I have tons, since I'm a big tennis guy, but I got lots and lots of questions. Could you give us, we always like to ask our guests, like, how did you get started in tennis analytics? Like, what, what was your, whether it's academic or professional path that led you to tennis analytics? Yeah, good question. I think there's a lot of people in this field that have a math background or a statistics background. I was the complete opposite. I almost failed math in high school. I've never liked it. Um, and, you know, it's the reason I'm involved with it is that as a tennis coach, my number one role is to help develop my players. And as I looked to figure out what was the most important thing to help them win more matches, it was tennis strategy. And if I thought it was fitness or nutrition or strength or speed, I would be talking to you about that today. But tennis strategy, the patterns of play in our game, matter the most to the win-loss column. So there's only really one way to figure out, is this pattern better than that? Is it better to hit forehands or backhands or serve out wide and go down the tee? It's, it, it comes back to numbers. It comes back to percentages, analytics and metrics and digging deeper into that. So that's really, you know, a lot of people say, Craig, you're the stats guy in tennis. Not really. I'm the strategy guy, and I, there's only one way to explain it all and to figure it out, and that's using analytics. Well, first of all, I love what you said. Um, good news is we capture everything here on Wharton Moneyball. I'm going to be tweeting about everything you just said uh, as soon as I'm off the air, but I have a specific question to you now. So mm-hmm. how much strategy is, for example, specific to an opponent? So, for example, last night we saw an incredible match between Roger yep. Federer and Francis Tiafoe. If I Tiafo, and one of the comments made by John McEnroe what, last night was, he says, as soon as Tiafo Tiafo learns tennis strategy better, he could be a top ten player. And so his comment was, he's just not necessarily choosing the right shots at the right time. How much of this is match to match? Like you would, you know, if you were a TFO's coach, you would say, here are the patterns on Federer as opposed to him playing Nadal or as opposed to him playing Zverev. Like how much of the metrics and analytics are just, you're better when you do this, or this is your opponent, you need to adjust for this opponent? Fantastic. The, the, the main thing to understand in tennis is that you are the second most important person on the court. You're not the first. And as soon as you put yourself second and look to the player on the other side of the net and and clearly understand their strengths and weaknesses, that's when you take the leap from good to great. So it's very much about looking to the other side and understanding what's going on over there. You know, I've coached against Federer. I've coached against Nadal. I've coached against Djokovic and these guys. And you must have very specific patterns of play that will always be adjusting against them. So, yes, there is an element where you go out there, and Francis will go out there last night and try and implement the patterns of play that he does well, that are the strengths of his game. That is a component but it is a secondary component to ultimately winning that match. The primary component is understanding Roger. Now, the the key here for Francis, you know, very specifically as a young up-and-coming American, is that let's say, we say, Francis, how many times in the last 12 months have you walked off the court and said, I played phenomenal, I was fantastic tonight, my forehand was great, my backhand was on, my serve was excellent. 
Well, he's probably going to say, like most people say, in the last year, there's only two or three times that I've come off the court and felt that good. And let's say he's played 50 matches. For 47 of those matches, his A game did not turn up. So winning tennis matches is not about you playing great. It's about making the opponent play bad. It's about making them tap out. It's about being on their serve patterns. It's about figuring out how to get after Roger's backhand and break it down and force errors. Forcing errors is number one in tennis, not winners. So look to the other side of the court and understand. And that's what John's alluding to there, is that the other side of the court ultimately is more important than your side. Hey, this is uh, Shane Jensen. I I actually want to follow up about Roger Federer specifically, because we talk about him a lot on this show, because what he's doing at, at his advanced age is incredibly impressive. Mm-hmm. And I think in our... Previous discussions, <clears throat> most of what we focus on is is less about strategy, but more about fit. Like uh, you know, we we interpret his his uh, late career success as due to fitness and 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 some impressive regime he must have going on for training. But is that the case, or is it more that has he been able to somehow adapt his or change his strategies over the years to kind of I, I guess remain competitive uh, despite his age? Yeah, it's it, it's you know it's a. It's a blend of those components. So, yes, taking time off for Roger as he's got older, as he did last year, is certainly a positive for him. It enables his body to freshen up. And the season is long, it's tough, and there's no doubt it takes a toll on the body. So one of the things that these guys are always trying to do, they've got to be on court to earn their living, but they've got to stay fresh so they can stay on court consistently. But again, that is a secondary component for Roger. At the Australian Open this year, his commitment to block his backhand return against Nadal in the final has set up his entire year. And, you know, I, I spoke with Severin Luthi the day before, talked to him about the, the plans and tactics. And, you know, one of the things that, you know, the, the, the guys that I study the most are Federer, Nadal, Djokovic and Murray. And Nadal is a creature of habit. He is going to serve in the deuce court hit that slider down the tee almost every time. And you can't cover everything. You can't cover out wide. You can't cover down the tee at the same time. So you pick and choose your battles. And what Federer did in that match was he said, I'm going to cover the tee. I know it's going to go there. You could almost just take a couple of steps forward and say, the majority, you know, if he serves here 80 times, 75 are going to be right in this spot. It's the same serve. Federer stepped forward. He kept a short backswing. He blocked the ball. He used rebounding power straight back at Nadal, which in turn made the point quicker. It made the point... Uh, it, it brought more pressure to Nadal as the first shot after the serve. It didn't allow him to back up and get deeper into the point. It made the point shorter, and it helped Rod, Roger bring the pressure at the beginning of the point instead of trying to... What he normally did, which was slice the backhand return and then try and neutralize and then get into it. So it had several benefits to blocking that. It also made his backhand better in general rally play by attacking Nadal through the middle of the court to the forehand, which is actually leading to the final. Nadal's place where he hit the most forehand winners to the final was standing in the deuce court, slightly in the deuce court inside the baseline. But the place where he hit the least amount of forehand winners was slightly in the ad court behind the baseline. And that's where Federer hit a ton of his rally backhands uh, in that final, and, and you know, it was very close in the fifth set, but 
ultimately the weight of numbers really paid off for him, and it's paid off consistently through this season. So we're here talking to Craig O'Shaughnessy. Uh, Craig is widely recognized as one of the world leaders in teaching and analyzing tennis strategy. He specializes in the area of uh, strategy and app applying analytics and metrics to tennis. Of course, if you want to join the conversation, please call us here at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. You can also email us at businessradio at SiriusXM.com. Shane, I thought it was interesting the way I, I don't know that I've ever heard heard anybody talk about this about that in some sense you the player and that was my point he answered my point exactly about that you the player are the second most important part it's really a lot about uh, playing to people's weaknesses yeah no and i i I think it's interesting i mean i'll 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 be interested to i I mean certainly with federer and everything like that i I mean i'm kind of interested also in the question of you know between men, the men's and women's game, obviously the men's and women's game differs in a lot of different ways. Does this kind of this, you know, the prevalence of strategy or the kind of potential gains from from uh, taking a more strategic approach are those equal across the two games? Yeah, Craig, how do you feel about that? How do you feel about the you know is there a different role of strategy in just because of the power in men's tennis versus women's, or do you see the role of strategy as being the same? Well, let me tell you some numbers. Let's start with there and see. We'll remove the opinion and guesswork and, and go straight to the numbers. So last year at the U.S. Open, baseline points won, and this is the average for all of the men and all of the women at the tournament. Baseline points won, 47% men, 47% women. Net points won, 65% men, 65% women. Serve and volley points won, 65% men, 66% women. And the Australian Open's the same, Wimbledon's the same, Roland Garros is the same. Roland Garros baseline points won 48% men and, uh, men and women, and net points 65% men, 62% women. So as I go through all of the analytics of tennis, in the men's game and the women's game, let's say we, we look at 100 analytical points. I would say 90, at least 90 of those, they're almost within one to two percentage points of being exactly the same. So when we watch, our eyes kind of lie to us a bit. We think the the women's game is a backhand-dominated game. It's not. It's a forehand-dominated game, exactly like the men. They're both around. Actually, first round here at the U.S. Open last year, 65% forehand winners versus backhand from the back of the court, exactly the same for men and women. So if I've got a 12-year-old boy and a 12-year-old girl, I am going to develop their games in exactly the same way. It'll be identical. Are there some differences in overall serve speed? Yes, on first serve speed. But keep in mind, Serena (laughs) typically hits a harder first serve at a tournament than Novak, than Rafa, than David Ferrer, than Nanko Tipsarovic, and all of these guys. There's several of these guys that Serena can just blast off the court. So the key here is there's not a lot of Serenas out there. So at the top of the game... There's more power in the men's game, which helps the serve numbers. There's less overall in the women's, which helps the returning. But the strategy of the game, it doesn't matter whether it's two men, two women, two 12-year-old girls, or two llamas playing tennis. They're going to produce the same statistics in our game. 
Could you talk, I know you wrote a recently, uh, recent wrote a New York Times article, Shane talked about this a little bit just a minute ago about Federer, but about the resurgence of Nadal and Federer. For those of us that don't live tennis all the time and don't live tennis analytics all the time. Is, is there people that don't live tennis all the time? I, I think there are. Not here on Wharton Money Bond. By the way, if you do live tennis all the time. I've heard like, rumors. I've, I've heard, heard rumors. rumors but yeah. if, you don't, if you do live tennis all the time like me and you have Crescents for Craig O'Shaughnessy, please call us at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7860. But for those people that haven't learned yet to follow tennis all the time, how can you explain that the top two players in the world this year, likely at the end of the season, are going to be Nadal and Federer? As you, as we all know, Federer hadn't won a major for four and a half years, both of them coming off injury. You wrote a New York Times article about it. What's happened? What has led to this resurgence? You can't. I, I certainly cannot put my finger on exactly one thing. But what I see now, the first thing in that New York Times article was they, there's only one statistic in tennis where they are number one and number two in the world, almost like they are now coming in. I think Roger Federer was only five ranking points behind Andy Murray. So Roger's three, Andy was two, and Rafa's one. But for all intents and purposes, you know, with Andy's injuries, he's headed south, Roger's headed north. So you can certainly talk about them being one and two in the world as they are in the race. Um, they are they are number one and two in the world in second serve points one, and that's very very important because it, you know it's it's really a simple way to look at tennis. When a first serve is made, the win percentage is around seventy five percent. So just think of it as three or four, three out of four. When you see four first serves going at the U.S. Open, the serve is going to win three. You can't as a returner win enough points to really matter against an opponent's first serve. It's just too dominant. But as soon as that first serve is missed, then it's game on. So the average is, you know, it hovers between 49% to 51% on second serve points one. So, you know, it's, it's essentially as soon as the first serve is missed, the server may as well just walk to the middle of the court Motion the opponent towards the middle of the court and just feed it out of the hand right down the center of the court because it's a 50-50 battle. There is, there is essentially no strategic advantage to second serves. So that is a, is a criteria that you really want to do well in. And while the rest of the tour is struggling at 49 to 51%, Nadal and Federer are up around 61 and 60%. Wow. Wow! Yeah, it, it's, it's ridiculous. And and at the French Open this year, I, I mean, please make sure wherever you are in the world listening to this, sit down and strap in. At the French Open this year, Nadal had a higher win percentage on his second serve than his first. That's it's obscene. I've never That's seen something like that. So, so the second serve is a gateway to stealing points from the server, to breaking serve, to winning matches. And Federer and Nadal know it, and they double down on it, and they kill it in that area while the rest of the tour struggles. So, Craig, I want to ask you, since um, so we also talk here on Wharton Moneyball a little bit about statistics, obviously, and strategy. So, it, given players know this, can you talk to us about the role then of saying to somebody, well, look, if you you need to dial back a little bit on your first serve, in other words, instead of hitting it 120, hit yep. it 110 because that'll give you a better chance of winning the point. 
because if you get to your second serve, it's a coin flip. But of course, on the opposite, if you can hit it 120 and in, you raise your chances of winning the serve on the first point. How do you balance the, as you said, the probability of getting it in with the damage you're going to do if you get it in with what's going to happen on your second serve? How do you, how do you strategize with players to think about that trade-off? I absolutely love it. And this is, you know, ultimately answering questions like this, when you look at the different levels of coaches, this really separates a good coach from a great coach to understand how to filter this information to their player. So the first thing I looked at is you would think on the surface that making more first serves is great. So I, at every slam, and I'll do it here, you know, a high number is, say, between 65 to 75%. And every slam, I go and look at these guys, and I group them together. And let's say there's 10. Almost always, they're hardly winning a match. If you are making over 70% of your first serves, my money is you're losing. You're not, maybe you get around, maybe you get around, but most likely that group of players that are making over 70% do not make it out of the. Um, do not make it past the first round, and the reason is really simple. The first serve is a big weapon that has zero consequences if you miss it. Um, I'm losing the point immediately, so you know you've got to hit the ball. So guys that are making 70% aren't hitting it, and they're losing matches. Guys that are making half at 50% are losing matches because they're not getting it in enough. So when you look at the tour average, and I did I did over four slams in 2016, the tour average is 61%. You make 61% of your of your first serves. That's that's the trade-off. Seven out of ten seems to be too much. Five out of ten seems to be not enough. So I tell players that at every level of our sport, six out of ten is the magic number. And you'll find Novak and Roger. There'll be a, maybe a 63 or a 64. But on average, if you make six out of ten of your first serves, you can really go after it, and you can make a bunch of it, and you can win a ton of matches. This is what we call in, uh, you know, both in statistics and OR, the the interior maximum. Too low is no good. Too high is no good. There's kind of an interior maximum point. That's really. Well, I've, int- I've learned something today. I, I love that terminology. Well, if you drew a curve, there's an interior solution. A lot of people think more is always better or worse is always better. And most things in life, there tends to be a solution, as you just pointed out, Craig, that the interior, like, you know, 70% is not great, 50% is clearly not great. It's right in the middle. But I I really like how you've pointed out, essentially, that something, I think it's relatively counterintuitive that, that, you know, that that if you were to actually look at something like winning percentage on, on, on on first serve, that actually would be negatively correlated with overall success. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, you know that's that's what it comes down to. I mean, you you break things down behind first serves and second serves, and you know I did a uh, and there's also an efficiency rating that I wrote a story about on the ATP website this year. Is that you know the guys you know it always sticks out in my mind. Marty Fish. Marty used to make you know, around 50% of first serves, but he won about 80%. So he was really low on one side and really high on the other. But what if you combine those two metrics together into an efficiency rating where people that, um, you know, you figure out, you know, you include the faults and you include everything. And, you know, Karlovic and Isner came out very, very high there. And sometimes people say, why don't we just hit two first serves? I talked to uh, IBM at, at Wimbledon about it and, they actually said a guy like Karlovic would, 
would actually benefit from it and get away with it. But for the majority of players out there, it doesn't work out. Hitting a first and a second is essentially better. So let me ask you a few other questions. Let me actually transition now to this year's U.S. Open because you're mm-hmm. actually sitting in New York at this year's U.S. Open. Um, could you tell me, there were a couple of matches I saw uh, yesterday and the day before that i just like your opinion on. We already yep. talked about the Federer-Tiafo match. Um, can you explain to me how Maria Sharapova, who basically has played very little tennis, you know, I think it's 10 matches this year coming into the U.S. Open, was able to beat uh, uh, Simona Halep, and what you think about, and maybe the answer is, everyone should rest a lot and come back fresh, because I don't think I'd ever seen Sharamova move as well around the court as she did in that match. So what did you think about that match? Yeah, you know, the, the freshness aspect is really getting a lot of play at the moment, because We've got a ton of injuries with guys out, but we've also seen players, you know, such as Roger that's been out for a while and Maria who's been out for a while come back and just fresh as a daisy. And it's it, it's certainly a freshness in their body, but it's very much a freshness in their mind. And, you know, one, one last little thing, comment on that is that when I'm working with players at the tournament, you actually want to have the player on site as little as you possibly can. Because every minute they're on site, it is mentally taxing. There's there are people that they're running into. There's agents, there's friends, there's people wanting tickets. You know, you're constantly in demand. So you, you try and take the player, get them there, go and do your practice, do whatever you can, and then get away from the site so you can stay mentally fresh then. Um, Simona Halep, I was at the French Open final against Ostapenko. I mean, she's up, I think, 6 3 3 loses, uh, loses the game 3-1, and then it gets to 30-all and, uh, in that second set. And, and she loses that point, and she turns around and throws a racket. And I'm like, oh, my goodness, you're up a set and a break, and you are throwing your racket. And from that moment on, it was, it was a complete sea change, and I'm like, there's no way that Simona wins this match because what, what's happening essentially with her is she focuses too much on herself. That's the problem. And the backhand is solid as a rock. The forehand can spray. Everybody that plays Simona is going to attack that forehand. And it's really because of the size of the backswing and she just doesn't get organized nearly as well over there. But the thing is, when we see matches like this, most people are going to see that match and say, Maria Sharapova defeated Simona Halep. Most times, the majority of times when Simona Halep loses, she defeats herself. Most but, players But Sharapova it. had, just from a, again, this, please correct me if I'm wrong. I mean, I saw the statistics at the end, but Sharapova had a massive number of winners in that match. I mean, what just appeared to be clean winners. But you still, despite that, despite her, let's say, 3-1, to 4-1 to one edge on winners, you still yeah. feel potentially that Halep lost the match. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, think of it like this with winners. Never be enamored completely with winners. And it's really simple. Again, just coming back to the math of our sport, let's say Sharapova, which she did, she won the she won the battle of winners in that match. Well, our sport is organized basically around 70% of all points are errors, 30% are winners. And I constantly see the player that hit more winners in the match, which won the small pool of 30% of points, 
lose the match because they make too many errors going for all of those winners. And it's the, it's the other player that makes less errors. Making less errors will win you more matches than hitting more winners because you're winning the 70% pool versus the 30%. So I've always, wanted to ask, I've always wanted to ask someone that's an expert on tennis this, and I've always yep. said this to my kids, and maybe I've got it wrong, and you can help correct me. My son's a big, uh, very competitive level squash player, and what we've okay. always said is that strategy, and please correct me, this is, what I, this is why we're here on Morton Moneyball. I've always said that's, that strategy, minimizing errors, will help get you to the top 20, but it ain't going to beat the top players. you got to go for it against the top players. You may increase your error rate, but you've got to go for win winners when playing top players. My guess is you're going to tell me right now that I've been giving awful advice. Yeah. No, here's the deal, is that when you go to the U.S. Open website, and this is traditionally right through our sport, when you look at the breakdown, you're going to see a winner's column, and you'll see Maria's winners in that column. And you're going to see an unforced errors column. And there'll be tons of, you know, tons of numbers in there. What you don't see that's left out, that is the number one way points end in tennis, is forced errors. And it's criminal in our sport that this is happening because it affects the way we think about it and the way we coach and the way we talk to our young kids. Forcing errors is the number one way points end in tennis. It's the biggest grouping of points. And forcing errors is actually a very aggressive play. And as you're playing the best players in the world, you must force errors. So I'll give you a little example here. I did, in 2015, I did four slams together. So uh, let's do the men. 68% of all points enters as an error in 2015, 32% as a winner. So then you break down the errors, 41% for the men, were forced errors, 27% unforced errors, and 32% were winners. So by far, the, the number one thing that happens is a forcing error. So forcing error is an aggressive way to play a point. Hitting winners is aggressive. So if we combine those two together, 73% of all points in tennis end with aggressive play, 27% end in consistent play. So when you're telling your son to be consistent, it's not going to stay. We don't. Tennis looks like a consistent sport because we have an unforced errors metric. It's not. Tennis is an aggressive sport, and to beat to to climb higher up the rankings, you have to be more and more aggressive against the better players. Once again, almost three out of four points in tennis end in an aggressive way, not in a consistent way. Hmm. That's really interesting. So in our last few minutes, Craig, we're talking to Craig O'Shaughnessy. Uh, Craig is uh, doing, analyzing tennis strategy for years. He specializes in the specific areas of the sport. He's his online uh, brain games tennis. Um, as we're looking forward to this U.S. Open, you know, right now at least, uh, we did a poll on Twitter here at Wharton Moneyball. It's got Federer, at least our poll has Federer as a 52% chance of winning the men's side. Let's just take each side just for a minute or two before we have to let you go. Um, yeah. how, is there anyone... We have Federer, then Nadal, then Zverev. What do you think, what's your prediction and thoughts about the men's side of the U.S. Open? Yeah, I mean, this very, excuse me, the two form players are Federer and Nadal. Now, Nadal doesn't necessarily have the form from Cincinnati and, and, and from Canada, but his overall body of work this year is very, very good. He did not play very well in the first set of his match um, here at the U.S. Open. A lot of backhand errors. 
and we won one of seven in that first set against the second serve. But the deal is, with especially for these guys, they know that through seven matches, they're not going to play their best every single match. But, you know, it's going to come down. You would expect Federer and Nadal to make the semi. Yeah, they're on the same side of the draw, though. Exactly, exactly. So one of them would get through, one of them wouldn't. Um, You know, today, if you had to say today, you'd probably say Federer. Federer wins that match. But, you know, there's a lot of water that needs to go under that bridge before then. Either of them... Could, uh, could fall apart before then. Um, I want to see that form. I'd like to talk to you right before that match. You know, Alexander Zverev, I saw him when he was 15 on a, on a backcourt at a future in Houston. And I'm sitting next to another player, and I said, there's a number one player in the world. The guy just laughed at me. He said, there's no way that kid, you know, he's lanky, he's a baby giraffe over there. There's a number one player. And I said, absolutely. So I tease him a little bit now um, with that prediction. You were so, right. Alex- I, I got that one right. I get I don't get everything right, but I did get that one. And it wasn't that difficult. Um, but Alexander Zverev is going to finish with several majors. There's no doubt about it, barring injury. Um, it's just a matter of when it starts. It very well could start here. The only thing that is tough for him as a young player, and Dominic team has gone through this as well, you see they're so good for six or seven or eight matches, and then mentally they tap out. They can't. They're building their tolerance for winning, and it takes their it takes their toll. So, you know, when you see Zverev lose, you know for the next three or four matches he'll freshen up, he'll be better. But once they get on this longer roll, they haven't learned to sustain it. But you know, the best players in the world will sustain it for a year, and other players that are learning will sustain it for a couple of months, and and then other players maybe it's a tournament or two. So. Yes, Alexander Zverev is certainly in the conversation. Federer and Nadal and everyone outside of that has really got to step up to, and, uh, to have a real crack at the title. Now, of course, now that's the easy side. In our last, we only have about a minute left, but in our last yeah. minute or so, the wide-open women's side. You know, Angelique Kerber's out. Obviously, yeah. Simona Halep's out. Obviously, Serena's not playing. Um, so what do you have any magic crystal ball for us on the women's <laughs> side? I mean, not you, you and everyone else, but it, you know, ha, any thoughts on the wide open, what I think is a wide open women's side. Oh my goodness. I think, I, I think I read that there is a possible eight ladies who could finish number one of the world at the end of this tournament. That is correct. I saw um, that last night. Okay. Okay. So listen, I, it's, it's a joke how wide open it is. I am so insanely impressed with Carolina Pliskova. I love what she did last year she, to make the final. If she just had a double down in that, in that deciding third set on getting to the net, on serving your bowling like she did, she would have won that match. So, you know, I, I'm going I'm to go with her. I love her game. I love her attacking style. If she fully commits to coming forward, holding the baseline, getting more forehands, I think the tournament's hers. Well, I, I like that pick, and my other pick is uh, Gabrina Muguruza. I may be pronouncing her name wrong, but uh, I'm a big Muguruza fan. I like what she does in the court. And uh, well, and informed, very much informed. And very much informed. Well, Craig, we could speak to you for hours, but this has been Craig O'Shaughnessy uh, here on Wharton Moneyball. Craig, thank you for your time, and uh, enjoy the rest of the U.S. Open, and thank you for sharing your knowledge with us today. Gentlemen, thank you so much. So this has been the third quarter of Wharton Moneyball. We still have half an hour to go. Uh, Please stay with us and join us right after the break. Welcome back here to Wharton Moneyball, the show where sports statistics and business collide. We're here on Sirius XM 111 Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. 
This is Eric Bradlow, Professor of Marketing and Statistics, and I'm here with my colleague Shane Jensen, Professor of Statistics. We had two fantastic guests, uh, Brian Burke from ESPN and Craig O'Shaughnessy, who does work on analytics and tennis. Those were our past two half hours. Now in the last half hour, we again open up to the phone lines where Shane and I just talk about the world of sports and statistics and what's caught our eye. And if you want to join the conversation, please call us at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. You can also email our producer, Matt Datz, at businessradio at SiriusXM.com. So actually, Shane, I want to start where you left us off at the 830 hour. You mentioned someone that's always a topic of analysis from the analytics types in baseball. Um, You had mentioned about Adam Dunn. There was an interesting analysis on 538 done recently about players who have seasons that have and these are sort of arbitrary numbers, but not exactly. Uh, 25 home runs in a season, 70 walks in a season, but shockingly, 150 strikeouts in a season. That's the Adam Dunn person. And uh, now, I guess the the year he did it in 2002, his first year, there were only three players in the major leagues that said that did it. And now we have potentially 14 players this year that are on pace to, again, hit for power, walk a lot, but strike out a lot. Yeah, what, what do you kind think of is like kind of non, causing this? Non in play. I, I mean, I think, I mean, I think a couple things might uh, be contributing to it. At least, I think, um, I do think that defensive shifting has gotten very good in the major leagues. So I, I think, um, to the extent that hitters have control over where their ball is going, I think people, they, they, I think there's an increased focus on trying to not put it into the field of play. Um, you know, which which will kind of bias you more towards home runs and perhaps a few more, uh, and certainly but more strikeouts as well. Yeah, but how do you explain the, like, I can understand, we all could agree, home runs and strikeouts may have a trade-off between them, yeah. but how do walks get in there? Like, how all of a sudden are guys hitting for more power, striking out more, but walking more? Well, they're waiting for their pitch. They're, they're much more waiting for, I mean, if hitters are waiting for their pitch more, what are you going to do? Well, that waiting for that pitch, you... You know, it's up to the pitcher to still get it in the strike zone. So you're going to walk more if you're if you're being more patient at the plate. Everybody knows that. But you're also going to strike out more if you're being patient at the plate, right? Um, and when you do put in play, you hit it. You try and hit it really hard. I mean, also I think you know that there has been some, um, you know, like uh, there's been some recent like kind of research that the ball might be a little bit more juice than it has been in in the past as well, and I think that might contribute. Maybe some of these things that would have been long fly balls are now going to be home runs, um, so that might be jacking up the home run count a bit as well. But I think I think probably it's 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 about hitters waiting for their pitch a little bit more. So how how do you think, as someone that does a lot of work yeah. on both the analytics of baseball, but you know, obviously a big baseball fan. How do you think? So let me just name a few of the guys on this list. So we've got Aaron Judge at the top of this list, Giancarlo Stanton on this list, Jose Bautista on this list. So these are guys, by the way, that get a lot of play. You know, they hit the big long ball. Um, they also walk a fair amount, which is kind of a good thing. How do you weigh these players against the, you know, more contact hitters? Like, how do you think about a player with high variance like this? Yeah, I, I mean, it's it's hard for I mean. I would be interested in seeing analyses of like kind of like, you know, I, I think it probably behooves a team to have a balance of, of of these types of players along with players that like are are more you know tend to get on base. Um, how exactly what the I mean I think it's a really interesting analytical question to sort of like how would what's the optimal design of a team like if I gave you sort of like a set of you know you could pull from a pool of people like Adam Dunn like people that are 
you know, the extreme power hitters, but strike out a ton. Um, and then you know, there's a bunch of people like from the Ichiro pool of people that get on base a ton, um, but but you know don't hit for power. Um, what mixture w- is ideal? Well, I mean, so I mean, a question: Why, just from a statistician's perspective? So let's agree we have the data for that for yeah. all the players. We do. Um, what stops someone from building a very simple regression model where the dependent variable is, let's just say for now the goal is to maximize runs. regular season wins oh, or runs, runs or yeah. whatever. Let's say it's regular season wins. Why not take that as the dependent variable, take some metric, like whether it's the variance of the players on the team or just how many players have this characteristic versus this mm-hmm. one. What stops, maybe general managers are doing this, although I've not heard anybody come on our show, Wharton Moneyball, and talk about this. What stops someone from filtering all of this data into a machine learning algorithm and basically looking at kind of the empirical composition, the optimal composition of players? Uh, and uh, I mean, I bet you those analyses are being run in some, some way. I, th- I think what stops it from being, you know, something that we see obviously implemented um, across Major League Baseball is we're talking, I mean, these two pools I've set up, the like Adam Dunn pool and the Ichiro pool, um, there's not a ton of, I mean, you need, I mean, for this mixture to really kind of work out, you need these elite players in both these pools. The vast majority of Major League Baseball players, though incredibly good at baseball, obviously are not in these kind of elite extreme hitting pools either like getting on base all the time or hitting for power to the extent that somebody like judge or stanton or or dunn used to hit so i i think probably a general manager maybe runs this model and says okay well this is my optimal kind of like collection of 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 player types he's still constrained to then go out and get players that fulfill the fulfill those types like and you know within whatever budget he's been given so i think i think probably implementation wise the reason it hasn't really happened or we haven't seen dramatic kind of instances of it is you still are constrained to like you know have to you know you're constrained to have a not uh, entire lineup of elite players like this so uh you know we talked a lot about baseball today i think it's, it's important that we spend our last you know we have maybe 15 minutes to go here on wharton moneyball it's great if people want to join the conversation here on one eight four four wharton that's one eight four four nine four two seventy eight sixty six. probably makes sense a little bit for us to talk a little bit about the fight that happened last saturday yep. night for those people that didn't watch the fight there were a lot of people that watched it by the way this was uh floyd money mayweather uh, 49-0 going into the fight, undefeated champion. Uh, they were fighting at 154-pound weight limit. Um, he's obviously been in boxing for, I think he's 19 years. Uh, he was fighting Conor McGregor, the two-division MMA mixed martial yeah. arts champion, who had never fought a professional fight before. Yeah. And uh, But, of course, this is the classic trade-off. So Mayweather, 40 years old, who hadn't fought in two years. McGregor just turned 29, very active fighter, and in general, just kind of a bigger man. I mean, yeah. probably by the they weighed in the day before, but McGregor probably weighed 170 for the fight, and Mayweather maybe 155. You could just tell yeah. the size difference between the two. I know I watched the fight. You said uh, at the break you didn't watch the fight. Were you surprised after your evening plans and you came back and you saw that McGregor lasted into the tenth round with Mayweather. Did yeah, that I, I mean, you? I mean, I would have been shocked if McGregor had won the match somehow. Um, just given that it's a boxing match and he's not a boxer, and Mayweather is. Um, but I, 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 I guess I, I gave it fifty-fifty to kind of go uh, ahead of time to kind of 
I had McGregor 100% losing, but like 50-50 that he makes it the entire uh, match, like essentially the entire length of the match, versus like gets knocked out relatively early. Um, And my rationale for that is, I mean, Floyd Mayweather is a very defensive boxer. I mean, he basically— That's what he's known for. Guys can't hit him. That is what he's known for. He's not a person that ends people relatively quickly. Well, in fact, of his 49 victories, remember, now 50, but 49 victories, I think some number, I maybe have a slightly wrong, it's like 25 or 26 were by knockout. Yeah. He has a, for a guy that's 49 and 0, he has a very low knockout percentage. That's right, that's right. And so, I mean, I think he he basically, the match went about as well as, well as it could have for Mayweather, right? I mean, he... You know, McGregor came on in the early rounds and was, you know, trying trying to end things as quickly as possible. And Mayweather, that, that, that just basically feeds into Mayweather's defensive game. So I have two stats from that fight that I think I'd love to hear your reaction to that kind of say, you know, father time is undefeated is the classic yeah. expression. So um, who would you say, this is a question, but it's a rhetorical question, who would you say historically is a better boxer? Conor McGregor, which has no record, yeah. or Manny Pacquiao? Oh, Manny Pacquiao. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So here's an interesting stat from the fight. Yeah. Manny Pacquiao, during his fight against uh, Mayweather, landed 19% of his punches. A very low number, yeah. by the way. McGregor landed 26% of his punches. So I go back to the father time. Mayweather says all the time, he said before the fight, I'm not the fighter I was even two years ago. Father yeah. time's undefeated. So how does that help you think about, in some sense, maybe this is just, this is the 40-year-old Roger Mayweather. I mean, you put him in as a 35-year-old, a 32-year-old fighting yeah. McGregor, he would have whipped him even more than he did. How oh, do you, I, how, when I, just by that stat, what does that tell you? Yeah, no, and I and I, I, I agree. I think that, you know, if, if, if they were, you know, I think, you know, this weird hypothetical universe where they're the same age or something like that, but that Mayweather's still the best boxer, you know, in in recent history, and McGregor is not a boxer. I think it, it, it goes even worse for McGregor, definitely. I mean, like, I, I think, you know, having Mayweather be older... I, probably that 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 one way in which that age has affected his uh, his game is he probably plays even more conservatively. He's even more defensive, right? Um, and by the way, by the way, after the fight, not that he didn't say this before the fight, Mayweather said, "Well, we handpicked this guy." In other words, yeah. I'm not saying that they handpicked a you know a cream puff that couldn't fight, but they picked a guy that. They didn't put him in there against a real boxer. I think the 40-year-old Roger Mayweather, Mayweather said, I don't want to go in there against a real boxer. Why yeah. would I want to do that? Yeah. No, that's right. I, and, I mean, like, I, I think it was obviously it was, you know, it was, it was a good pick for a lot of financial, like, and excitement reasons as well. But, yeah, obviously, I think Mayweather, you know, he's, he's you know, give him credit. He's been a very smart fighter his entire career. Right. He, he, he picks his battles very well. Yeah, Floyd Mayweather. Floyd Mayweather. Floyd. Not Roger. Roger Mayweather's a different sport. Well, no, you're, I mean, because you keep thinking—Roger Federer is, like, this, like, canonical example of this guy who, like, goes yeah. up against Father Time. So I think we just confound the two. But I got another interesting stat for you, and it's something I thought about during the fight. So um, an MMA match, many of them, are five rounds of five minutes each. So that's yeah. 25 minutes of fight time. Take a guess at what time in the fight Conor McGregor was out of gas. Probably about like 25, 20, 25 minutes. Yeah. The first minute of the ninth round, boxing matches are three minutes around. Eight yeah. times three is 24, last time yeah. I checked. The first minute of the ninth round, I said, I was watching with my son Ben. I said, Ben, 
this guy looks exhausted. Yeah. He looks like a different fighter. He could fight for 25 minutes and no more. So it was also interesting to me, kind of the pacing of the fight. Yeah. Literally, if you had seen the beginning of that ninth round, you'd say, McGregor's out on his feet. He's yeah. just, he can't last four more rounds. So I also found it interesting that this, if you'd like, the 25 minutes of MMA, I'm not saying it's the same, but that's about how he could last yeah. in the boxing ring. That was, he was His body was trained yeah. for about 25 minutes of action. No, and I mean, I think it's it's really it was a really interesting match for that. The, I mean, I, I, I again, there's very many, there's a lot of reasons, millions of reasons why McGregor agreed to do this. But it, he obviously was completely outside the, the the zone of what he's at all used to, you know. So, I mean, credit to him for making it that long. I actually do think that there was some chance, at least, that he would, you know, be. Uh, that Floyd Mayweather would have ended the match much earlier. So I mean, you know, I, I, I guess you know he gets a gets a partial win for making it as long as he did. But. So let me ask you, you know, this obviously brings up a more general, not statistics question, but sports and statistics question about let's call it cross sport athletes. Mm-hmm. And so, um, what is like? Will we see someone a top? I mean, let's give Conor McGregor a lot of credit. I mean, he fought in a sport that's not, I mean, it's sort of his sport, but yeah. not really his sport. Um, you know, we always say harken back to the Bo Jacksons and the Deion Sanders and mm-hmm. players like that. We obviously Michael are ne- Jordan to Michael. a lesser extent. Well, we're now trying to see at least Tim Tebow, by <laughs> the way. How the mighty have fallen. Um, you know, I was the one saying, man, do you see what Tim Tebow's doing at Port St. Lucie? That's the high A-level yeah. ball. He's hitting 300. He's, he's got a 900 ops. Well, his batting average is down to 220. So now, by the way, at both A-level ball, his stats are almost identical. He's a 220 hitter. His slugging's about 370. His on-base plus slugging is about 620 to 650. This isn't a professional, not, not a not a major league level baseball I, player. That's right. But do you, do you think we will see in the era of specialization of sports that we see now? And we have plenty of people here on Wharton Moneyball talk to us about training. Do you? How soon do you think it'll be before we see a quote unquote major leaguer at multiple sports again? I think it's difficult. I mean, somebody like Bo Jackson could certainly come out come out of the ether somehow. You know, I mean, I I think I'll, I'll put it this way. I think there will be definitely people that come out that have the kind of the the skills and athleticism to excel in in multiple sports at the same time. Whether the kind of financial side, like with contracts and all that stuff, whether they would be allowed to, it's still kind of crazy that the you know I mean that you know Bo Jackson was able to do what he did. Um, so I kind of wonder if it'll be something that you know whether the athlete in, in choosing whether or not to specialize has got to make a kind of a financial decision as well, right? Do I want to be in the you know top? five percent of one sport or do i want to be in the top 15 percent percent or something like that across multiple sports that's probably the decision that this particular hypothetical athlete would make and well that was what was incredible about in some sense i think separates bo jackson because he was from the others he was he was top he was an all-star player in in all-star all pro in both sports that's right and Deion sanders was obviously a great football player was an okay baseball yeah. player. He was I mean, no, that's right. okay for a major leaguer. He was a great baseball player, but yeah. he was kind of played both sports. What do you think about the opportunity now? You know, we just saw it was a, actually a very sad, a sad. I don't want to get sad. What's happening in Houston and Hurricane Harvey is sad. It's tragic. It's tra- it's absolutely tragic. What's 
I was talking about from a sports point of view. I don't know if you saw Usain Bolt's last race where I'm not talking about the race where he lost the 100 to Justin Gatlin. Okay. I'm referring to the uh, the uh, team race, the uh, the relay, the relay race, where he literally on the last leg, his leg gave out oh. and he tumbled to the ground and Jamaica lost. And um, I was actually referring to that race. Um, do you think there's a time? The reason it made me think of it is, do you think there's a time where a sprinter? Are we going to relive the Ronaldo Nehemiah days, where we get a guy who really has very little hands for football, but you know, put a fast guy out there on the football field and let's see what happens? No, probably not. Only, only because you know, I, I mean, those sprinter. I mean, anybody who grows up in like the sprinting culture. I mean, you got to be able to take hits. You got to be. I mean, like it's it's a very different enterprise. I mean, I guess one could argue baseball and, and football maybe are as well. It could happen. I don't. I don't think it'll happen. I th- I think it'll probably be. Something like, I, I mean, I think there's a reason why we keep seeing baseball as one of the sports of these multiple sport athletes, you know, whether they're coming from basketball or coming from football. I think it'll probably be baseball paired with one of these big professional sports. No, and I would actually agree with you, but man, oh man, to hit a baseball, I mean, that, that takes no. it's You know, it's to do that, it's, it's I really mean, you're hard. you're talking to a guy who's clearly not going to excel in any of these sports. There so. you go. <laughs> so in the last three or so minutes we have on the show, I just wanted to get your opinion quickly about a couple of uh, NCAA football games the weekend. The games are starting, in fact, tomorrow night, Ohio State's playing Indiana. That probably won't be that competitive. But we have three very competitive games this weekend, all interestingly, by the way, on neutral sites. None of them are home games for the teams. The first one, even if we only get to this one, Number one Alabama versus number three FSU Saturday night. It's in Atlanta. What a is the crazy game. game to start on? I know. Yeah, so that's, I wanted to ask you. That's amazing. So, so how do you? You know, on the one hand, we Cade, who's our co-host here, always mm-hmm. talks about priors. Yeah, and you know, if we use priors, Alabama should be a strong favorite. By the yeah. way, they're a seven-point favorite in the game, which seems about right to me. Um, but we have how do it's we... crazy by the way that it's the number one team against the number three team and there's a seven point difference. So can between you convert that to odds for our fans out here? Roughly, what does that mean in terms of odds? Probably seventy thirty. Yeah, about seventy thirty. I think. Yeah, maybe like high sixties or something like yeah, that. Yeah, how, yeah, yeah. Roughly so... a seventy thirty split. Right. So we're both surprised a little bit by that, but. Isn't there just massive uncertainty just because it's the first game yeah. of the season? Like, if I told you, by the way, if we're sitting our week next week here on Wharton Moneyball, 8 to 10 a.m. live Eastern, we played throughout the week. If I tell you that Florida State won the game by seven points, would you be shocked? No, I wouldn't be shocked. I but mean, if I yeah, told would... you by the end of last season, or the end of this season, let's say, that FSU beats Alabama by seven, wouldn't you be more shocked just because it seems like there's just so much uncertainty now that the game could go either I way? I mean, if it's the end of the season and Alabama is what we think they were and Florida State is kind of what we think they were, yeah, I think it'd be even more, it would be more surprising at the end of the season, though, I mean, that's kind of, you know, a weird hypothetical, right? You know, so... Um, but no, I mean, I, I would not be shocked if Florida State beat Alabama. I, I'm, I'm, at the same time, you know, I think seven points seems a little high to me. But I, I would definitely favor Alabama. What's also, game. of course, interesting is, as you point, I think the loser of that game. This is the way the college playoffs work nowadays. Better think about winning the rest of their games if oh, they're yeah, going no, to make it. Because there's not right. going to be a two-loss team probably. If there's anybody who could do it, Alabama not. could do yeah. it. But FSU can't lose two yeah, games no, and make right. it to the playoffs. That's right. Yeah, these these. Both these teams are probably thinking of this as 
presumably their toughest game that they're going to come across. And so this is the one loss they can potentially tolerate. But if they, either of those two teams that do lose, yeah, that's that's their only win for a loss for the season. Well, this has been two hours here of Wharton Moneyball today. We had great guests. We had Brian Burke join us to talk about the NFL. So thanks to Brian. We had Craig O'Shaughnessy talk to us about tennis. Both Kate, uh, Shane and I were like, wow, we learned a lot about tennis today. Um, lots of great college football coming up. Alabama FSU. We uh, Michigan, number 11 versus Florida. West Virginia. Virginia versus Virginia Tech, so lots of great college football. And, of course, please, I'm begging you, pay attention to tennis. It's a wonderful sport to watch, great strategy, great analytics. So this has been Morton Moneyball. This is Eric Bradlow. On behalf of my co-host, Shane Jensen, on behalf of our producer, Matt Datz, and producer of our associate producer, Danielle Bruno, we hope you've enjoyed this two hours of sports, business, and analytics. Join us next week here on Wharton Moneyball. <laughs>